Ayn Rand was a radical who repudiated ideas that had been cherished by Western culture for thousands of years. How can such unconventional ideas make headway in the face of such entrenched opposition? Well, here at the Ayn Rand Institute, we're often asked about why we promote Ayn Rand's ideas in the particular way that we do. And so today, we're going to take some time to answer some of the questions that sometimes come up about this. And in doing so, we're going to say more about how we think what, uh, how we think it's we need uh, and what we think we need to do in order to change the culture in the long term. Well, welcome to New Ideal Live. This is the weekly podcast series from the Ayn Rand Institute. Today, we're going to be discussing the idea, how can we change people's minds about Ayn Rand's controversial ideas? My name is Ben Baer. I'm shortly going to be joined by ARI senior fellow, Ankar Gatte. Ankar, are you out there today? Yes, hi, Ben. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us on what I think is a really important topic to discuss uh, for our regular listeners. Um, so the, the episode title today is about how do we change people's minds? But of course, uh, asking that question presupposes that we have already decided that we should try to change people's minds about these ideas. And I think we should say a little bit more about why we think that's true, why it is we need to work to change people's minds. And um, I thought it would be a good uh, idea to kick it off by talking about an example where I think it, it the need for changing minds should be especially obvious. Uh, and that's in relation to the recent uh, COVID pandemic, uh, especially in connection with the political aspect of it. The way that the government has approached and handled this problem is by engaging in, uh, in part by engaging in widespread uh, business shutdowns. We have a whole new wave of them now happening all over the country because of the latest spike in the pandemic. Now, it's worth noting that uh, these these lockdowns are seem to have been resorted to uh, out of panic, uh, especially at the beginning. But we still see the same kind of uh, approach being taken, and that makes sense given that simply having a centralized government authority try to manage the entire society and the economy is the exact solution that you would expect uh, from leaders who share statist collectivist ideas, uh, who think that it's the government's job not to protect the rights of, say, for example, uninfected individuals uh, and to leave everyone else free to act, but uh, to try to save as many lives as possible and to end the pandemic uh, for the entire society, regardless of any impacts there may be on uh, the infringement of liberties. So, I mean, the way I see it, at least, and I'd be interested to hear if you agree with me, Ankar, that in in the face of a crisis like this, where everyone's panicking, it's you should have predicted that this is what was going to happen, that it was virtually inevitable that a culture that has statist collectivist premises, uh, when it doesn't know what to do, it's going to, it's going to resort to a move like this because these are its default premises. And, and this explains, I think, why uh, virtually the entire governmental leadership has done this. And I'm not, not just the Democratic governors, but 19 Republican governors have also resorted to one form of shutdown or another. Yeah, I think it does illustrate the, the framework from which they're operating. And the, I think it illustrated too how dominant it is. It's not just like the politicians imposed this on the rest of us who were advocating for something different. In these kinds of crises, it's now too often the case that people look to government to, you've got to solve this. We're helpless, passive, you hold the power, you've got to do something. And in this situation, it would have been, if the government did its very restricted task of trying to detect the carriers and isolate them and left us free to cope as best uh, we can and thinking through the evidence of what needs to be done, if it had allowed individual action, we would have been much better off. But the default solution is, no, government is there more and more to take care of us. And as you said, to run the economy, to run our lives. And if you really deep down think that, yeah, in a time of crisis, it's 
We really need government to take over. And if, if you're in our audience today and you think that there's a problem with that approach because those premises are wrong, you know, my point in giving the example is, well, these premises are so deeply entrenched in our culture that they've been adopted by so many people and so many people in the leadership that if you, if you don't like how this was the default solution, well, you've, there's a lot of work that needs to be done in order to you know, uproot these premises, to challenge them and to get key people to uh, start questioning them and not uh, just resort to them kind of automatically. And Ankar, in, in connection with that, uh, I thought it would be useful to take a look at ARI's perspective, not just on this particular issue, but on the more general issue of what it takes to change the culture and, uh, and, and, and why and how ARI was founded with a certain perspective of, about that in mind. So uh, the, there's an intellectual yeah. charter document, for instance. Yeah, let, let's put up a quote from there. It illustrates, uh, so this is our founding charter for the Institute, and it illustrates that from the get-go, the thought was this is a long-term and edu in essentially educational mission that we're challenging ideas that have been dominant for thousands of years and deep philosophical ideas so fundamental ideas that are shaping everything that uh, are the root of the uh, ideas and problems in the culture. So this is what the, the charter in part says. The founders of this institute hold that historical trends are caused at root by philosophical ideas that today's trend towards dictatorship and destruction is caused by today's dominant ideas, irrationalism, altruism, collectivism, and that only a fundamental change in philosophy can avert disaster and bring about world freedom, peace, and prosperity." Uh, close quote. So it, we've always had a philosophical mission and that means it's a long-term mission as we'll talk about because to change people's philosophical ideas, I mean, that's the essential mission of the Institute to help spur a change in people's philosophical ideas. That takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of time. I wanna emphasize one other aspect before we go into some of the particulars of that, what was quoted there, it was, you can see it as negative. It's like, we're trying to avert disaster and so we need to do things, but it was also to bring about a world, world freedom, peace and prosperity. And I think when you're trying to change people's ideas, particularly when you're trying to change their deep embedded ideas, what you have to do and what Ayn Rand did is offer a better vision. So you're offering essentially a positive, not we're headed to disaster, so we have to avert it, but rather we could be doing so much better than we are. Whether or not we're headed towards disaster, it's we could be doing better. And I think both of the Fountainhead and about the Shrug, as they're essentially positive and painting a vision of this is what we could have. This is what you could realize for the Fountainhead's more personal story. This is what you could realize in your own life. And for Atlas, it's a, it's a more uh, culture-wide story. It's like, this is the world and kind of culture we could have if we had the right ideas. And you always have to keep that positive in mind. I think when you're trying to persuade people about this issue, because it, you're demanding a lot from them to, to rethink deep ideas. And there has to be a real payoff for that. So it's, it's noteworthy uh, that part of the perspective here is, is not just there are uh, that we need to change people's minds. There's something very particular that we think their minds need to change about. They need to change their minds about these philosophical fundamentals. Now, this is a view that comes out of, uh, I think, a very distinctive perspective of Ayn Rand's that, uh, that philosophy is uh, fundamental to human life, that it's what shapes the course of history. And, and that's part of the reason why ARI focuses uh, in its efforts to change the culture on philosophical change. And could you say a little bit more about that perspective of Ayn Rand's? Yeah, I think she was unusual as a philosopher in thinking of the subject as 
inherently practical and in, as inherently action guiding and action shaping. And that's really for good or ill. If you have the right philosophical ideas, they lead you to the right goals and to the right actions that you need to take in a, in a fundamental sense, the actions that you need to take to reach your goals. So if you think of the founding fathers who created in the United States of America, they're using philosophical ideas generated in the enlightenment, new ideas about the nature of government, the relationship of the individual to government, the whole idea that no government doesn't stand above the individual, but is subordinate to the individual and his rights. It's a philosophical framework that then is shaping the direction the country and the culture goes in, in a positive way. And she thinks that in the later part of the 19th century, you have um, really a rejection of all these philosophical ideas of the enlightenment, and it puts Western culture on the path to uh, communism and Nazi Germany and fascism. So it's for good or ill that philosophical ideas shape the world. And she certainly thought of this as not obvious. That is, if you don't look out at the world and it's obvious that it's philosophical ideas are setting the basic trends and the basic direction. So she wrote a lot. Both the novels contain a lot about how philosophical ideas shape people's lives and therefore the culture more broadly. And a lot of her nonfiction is um, a theme of it is this is how philosophical ideas are leading to particular like to the war in Vietnam and that we don't know what we're doing and we can't get out of it um, to economic crises like the stagflation in the 1970s. She talks a lot about to really understand what's going on. You have to see the philosophical ideas shaping it. So she wasn't a theoretician for the sake of theory. I think she was only interested in theory to the extent that it illuminated practical events, day-to-day -day life of an individual and of the culture. And similarly, she was interested in cultural events from the perspective of you can see philosophy at work in shaping this. I mean, she has a whole book, Philosophy Who Needs It, whose theme is, it might not be obvious, but philosophical ideas are shaping our culture's events and uh, direction. Yeah, and since you mentioned the book Philosophy Who Needs It, I thought it would be a good idea to share uh, a few passages from an essay that appears in that book, which I think really speak to the heart of the issue that we've just been discussing, and which also, I think, shed a lot of light on why ARI takes the approach that it takes to uh, philosophical persuasion. This is from her essay, What Can One Do? And there's a lot about this that's, I think, uh, apt, especially in this climate. We talked about the, the uh, American government's response to the coronavirus pandemic. Well, uh, part of the reason why they defaulted was because of their ideas. And look at the way that she compares um, the intellectual problems we have today to a pandemic. She says, suppose you were a doctor in the midst of an epidemic, you would not ask, how can one doctor treat millions of patients and restore the whole country to perfect health? You would know whether you were alone or part of an organized medical campaign that you have to treat as many people as you can reach according to the best of your ability and that nothing else is possible. And skipping a little bit, she says, in an intellectual battle, you uh, do not need to convert everyone. History is made by minorities or more precisely, history is made by intellectual movements which are created by minorities. Who belongs to these minorities? Anyone who's able and willing actively to concern himself with intellectual issues. Here it's not quantity, but quality that counts, the quality and consistency of the ideas one is advocating. And this is such a great uh, essay that I thought we should take a look at uh, quite a bit of it. Um, and I'm gonna share one more passage from the same, and this is uh, selecting from different parts of it. She goes on to say, I ideas can be propagated only by men who understand them. An organized movement has to be preceded by an educational campaign. Such training is the first requirement for being a doctor during an ideological epidemic and the precondition of any attempt to change the world. And toward the end, uh, she, she says, I will say, when you ask, what can one do? The answer is speak, provided you know what you are saying. There's, that speaks to the issue of the importance of education. Do not pass up a chance to express your views on important issues. 
and this is the very end, if a dictatorship ever comes to this country, it will be by the default of those who keep silent, we are still free enough to speak. And Ankar, this set of passages from What Can One Do? On the one hand, it speaks to the importance of philosophic education as a prerequisite for any kind of organized movement. That's one of ARI's major focuses. But then toward the end, especially, it also talks about, well, uh, if you're going to speak in an educated way, one of the things you've got to do is to speak on the issues uh, that are important in the world today, that, that intellectual people care about, uh, the issues that you were co commenting on previously, where you see the action of philosophy, where you see philosophy having an influence uh, in a way that makes a difference, as you said, for better or for worse. Uh, did you want to comment on anything else about those passages? Um, well, we can take an example of that from ARI's past. You brought up the pandemic, which is, I mean, obviously this year and part of what we were doing and why we were commenting on it. If you think um, after 9-11, ARI spent a, a good deal of resources talking about this issue. Uh, so the, how to think about 9-11, what led to it, and what response is warranted. And it's again, from the, we didn't do it from the perspective that we're military experts uh, that we're going to devise the strategy for the army and the navy to carry out. And so it's rather it's the broad framework from which to think about this event that it's not causeless, but the cause, if you don't think philosophically, can be uh, difficult, if not impossible, to identify, to see the rise of a whole ideological movement in the Middle East takes philosophical knowledge and a philosophical perspective to see. There's a major trend towards theocracy in the Middle East and the full meaning of that, the relation of that viewpoint to Western ideals. So it takes a philosophical perspective. And then to think what it, if that's what the threat and the danger and evil that we're facing, what a proper response is. So it was, I think of it as philosophically informed commentary. And it's both, it illuminates the actual event. So what people are struggling with and what should our response be after 9-11? And it should illuminate that, or it should, it should indicate that objectivism or the Ayn Rand's philosophy has a perspective on this that you don't encounter elsewhere. So it's the, oh, so this is a different way of looking at it. And maybe I should investigate more this different perspective, not just what it, um, is said particularly about 9-11 or how to think about the Middle East, but more broadly, I should investigate this framework because it's, it's a framework of ideas that's leading to a different perspective. And I think that is um, part of what Ayn Rand is talking about in propagating new ideas. That's part of what you have to do. It's not just theoretical. And if philosophy really is her informal name for her philosophy, philosophy for living on earth, if it's to help you live on earth, it should help you navigate the world today. And you have to help people see that um, in order to sell the philosophy. So we've talked some about why we think it's so important that ideas in a culture change. We've talked about which ideas, philosophic ideas are so important to change. I think we need to now really get to the heart of the question we raised, how do you change ideas? And we've, we've just now been talking about the importance of speaking out on issues of the day. And we're gonna say more about that, but I, I do think it's, it's important to pause to kind of take a step back and say, well, there are a lot of different ways in which the ideas of a culture can change. Um, and actually ARI is involved with doing, uh, with activities that speak to each of these kinds of issues. So for instance, you know, it's, it's one thing to try to persuade someone to change their mind, but it's also, there's also an issue of raising awareness. There are people out there who maybe are disposed to agree with, with ideas like objectivism's ideas already. They just don't know that objectivism exists. They're disposed to accept reason, individualism and capitalism is very important. So part of our efforts are concerned with just raising awareness about the existence of objectivism, raising the awareness about the existence of Ayn Rand's books, the importance of Ayn Rand's books, what the values people can get from reading them. Um, 
ideas in a culture also change just when the old generation uh, frankly dies off and young people can be uh, introduced to new ideas. They'll uh, have the chance to adopt new ideas that maybe their elders uh, wouldn't have otherwise supported. But it's also still really important that the better people who are around today, the better people who are thinking about philosophic ideas and their application to the world, part of what involves when part of what happens when cultures change their ideas is that those better people will actually change their minds, at least to some extent, about these fundamental ideas. And, and if you think about uh, which of those people uh, are most important to, kind of to target for the sake of changing a culture, we'll think, for instance, about all the types of people who influenced the governors who were making these decisions to lock down the economy. Uh, the people like public health officials, judges, journalists, professors, they're the ones who are in the business of applying abstract ideas to uh, concrete problems and situations. And uh, they're, people like those are in key positions of intellectual influence. Uh, they're the ones who need to come to see that ideas like Ayn Rand's are uh, if not true, at least just plausible enough to deserve a hearing, to you know, let their students learn more about these ideas, to let the audience of a given publication learn more about these ideas. These are the gatekeepers who determine you know, whether more or fewer people are going to learn about these new ideas, take these ideas seriously. Um, what, how would you, would you say a little more about ARI's perspective on this variety of different ways in which ideas change in a culture and what we're doing to address that. Yeah, I think what you're bringing up now is the, there's audiences. So when you talk about changing ideas, you're changing somebody's mind. And you have to think then about, well, who is this somebody? You have to think about the audience. And the, if you think of some of ARI's major programs and activities, they fall into some of the, the sort of categories that you just sketched. So raising awareness, I mean, it's a common, it's a, a common event for someone to read The Fountainhead or Atlas Shrugged and to say that the rea they report the reaction is, she's putting into words stuff I've always thought. And that's, it's, if you can just get the novels into their hands, that, and if they read them, you don't have to do much else. Ayn Rand novels do the convincing, and there's a, for some people, it's just that's sufficient, that, that's persuaded them. So we have major programs to try to get Ayn Rand novels into people's hands. And then, particularly, we direct it towards young people. And again, if you think, the, I mean, the way you were putting it, that a, a young person isn't yet committed to a set of ideas. It's not impossible, but it's harder if you're 40 and you've committed to a set of ideas that you're now starting to think is maybe wrong to challenge your own ideas, replace them with something like that. That takes a lot of work. It's easier when you're young and in effect just picking between two views and saying like, which one really makes more sense? And so it's easier for a young person to adopt unconventional ideas, I think, because he's not committed yet to the conventional idea. He's heard them, absorbed them some, but they're not embedded in his mind and his thinking yet. So we target them. And then you brought up some of the other categories of people who are um, operating now in the intellectual world. And we certainly try to have impact on them. In the OAC program, is uh, that's our objective as academic center is our training program where we try to uh, help intellectuals develop who will go out into the existing intellectual world, interact with people who are not objectivists and discuss ideas with them, debate with them and to try to change their mind, not to make them objectivists, but to change their minds on particular issues for the better. I mean, we had a almost a decade long program when the BBNT Bank was sponsoring educational programs really throughout the Southwest of the United States of interacting with 
professors largely in economic departments or business schools who were uh, teaching at Lestrade and incorporating RAND into the classroom. And it was, again, the goal there was to engage with them about what's distinctive in Ayn Rand's worldview so that they can think about it better, present it to their students better. Again, the goal wasn't, we're gonna convince them about everything in objectivism, but you can nevertheless have a positive impact where they have more respect for Ayn Rand and objectivism. They're better at explaining it, conveying it to, to their students. And if they get a student who's particularly eager, they'll have, like here's other resources, they'll point them to the ARI and so on. So there's a lot that can be done that falls in the category of changing a person's mind. That doesn't mean you've now made them um, uh, agree with every aspect of the philosophy of mind. And some of those programs that you mentioned, the longer term programs that ARI has are some of the, in a way, most capital intensive ones. And so, you know, now's a good moment to uh, thank you. Thank the donors out there who are in the audience who've, who've helped us support those over the years. And a good opportunity also to thank somebody who just made a very generous donation in the super chat. Thank you for that. Um, but I do want to circle back to the issue of, uh, of speaking out on today's issues, which, which Ayn thought was very important. And you, you mentioned uh, the importance of thinking about your audience. Well, Obviously, if you if you want to change the ideas in a culture and you want to change minds, then you can't change the mind of somebody you're not actually talking to. You, you actually need to reach out to people who disagree with you about many of these big fundamental questions. And that has a lot of implications uh, at, at ARI. We spend uh, a lot of time thinking about which audiences of people who disagree with us about some of these fundamentals are nonetheless some of the best candidates to change their mind. And so we think about when we're writing articles or when we're doing podcasts, we think we, we identify a specific audience. We're thinking this is maybe an article for the better conservatives, or this is a different article for the better libertarians or the better liberals uh, or the better secular, secular humanists. And sometimes a, a single article can speak to many of these audiences in different ways. We'll talk a little bit more about that later when we zoom in on some of these issues. But uh, do you want to say a little bit more about how we think about uh, the audiences that we try to reach when we're trying to persuade people to change their minds? So I think what you just said is important. So let's emphasize that you put it, the better conservatives, the better libertarians, the better liberals. I think of that as not, better isn't, they're closer to my view about something. I think of it as primarily they're, thinking about the issue and they seem more first-handed. So there's more reason to think if you offer them a better argument and a better viewpoint, they'll stop and say, yeah, maybe there's something right about this and maybe there's something wrong about the way I'm thinking about it versus they're too embedded in their group or clique or tribe. I mean, it, it, it's different levels of how um, non-thinking in effect they are, even though it's an ideological, ostensibly an ideological group. So that's one of the things to be, the, the better means, is there evidence that they're actually thinking and first-handed about this? And then in one aspect that I think is not obvious, but it, it, I hopefully it's, it's persuasive when stated, is that you have to think about what ideas, viewpoints, this new perspective, so Ayn Rand's new perspective might be confused with. And if they equate the position with something that it's not, it will be easier to dismiss. So to give something I think that Ayn Rand spent a, a fair amount of energy on in it for a definite reason is she was pretty adamant about distinguishing her philosophy from Nietzsche. And so I think early on there's an influence and she still liked Nietzsche as a kind of poetic figure. She thought philosophically he's completely wrong and it's disastrously wrong. And later in life, she's very outspoken about, like I reject everything about Nietzsche as a philosophy. And it's still common today. I mean, I've had this, I'm sure Ben, you've had this, where people who, when they hear something for the first time about Rand, it's just, 
oh, that's just a warmed over Nietzsche or it's just a rework slightly. And it's not. But that react is like you, when you're thinking, it's you're trying to think like what where what category does this belong in? Have I heard something like this before? And for people acquainted with philosophy, one of the things that oh, Ayn Rand's just Nietzsche. And you have to do a lot of work to say, no, there's a different viewpoint here. You need to explore it and take it seriously. You can't just because you've read Nietzsche, now you know what how Ayn Rand thinks and what the philosophy is. And if you don't do that separation, then people will not take, I mean, they just won't process that you have a unique viewpoint. So, and it's often the closer the position seems to your viewpoint that's very different, the more you have to spend time making that distinction. And I think she did that and we do that at ARI as well, who, for positions that we think will be confused with our own, even though they're fundamentally different. Yeah, and to touch a little bit more on the issue you raised about how the audiences we're trying to reach out to are the ones that are better in the sense of they're, they're, we have reason to think they're better methodologically, they're better thinkers. Uh, there's a question or a comment really that came in uh, through Zoom saying, uh, the person suggests it's better to try to meet people at their context to get your point across that objectivism is the better philosophy. And, and on that note, um, reaching the people who are the better thinkers, but who still have a different context, who have a different set of background beliefs. Um, it's, I hear, I think it's really important. And this relates to your point earlier about how people who are older, uh, it's harder for them to change their minds, but that's still true for even younger people. You, nobody who's a better thinker changes their mind about an entire worldview overnight. There, there's too much that anyone has invested in it. They've connected it to too many different aspects of their own thinking where it wouldn't be rational to just throw it out and change it overnight. Uh, rational people change their minds about their worldview. They do it only very slowly. They do it step by step. They do it when they start to uncover contradictions in their thinking and the seed of a new idea starts to grow uh, really throughout their mind. I mean, technically speaking, you can never actually change another person's mind. Other people can only change their minds for themselves. Uh, the most that you can do is plant these seeds so that they can let them grow for themselves. And that's that's really especially important to think about when you're considering just how different and unique Ayn Rand's ideas are, how radically opposed they are to all the major intellectual trends of, of the last really 2000 years. And so most people have had opposite ideas planted in their minds and entrenched in their minds. And so Ayn Rand's ideas being so new and so different uh, most people are going to resist them and not just because they disagree with them, but as you emphasized with the issue about the comparison to Nietzsche, uh, often because they just don't even understand them. And to go back to the example that we started with about the lockdowns, I think you see this same issue at work here. I mean, think about how the idea of freedom, of individual freedom is tossed around in various debates about the lockdowns. So people who favor the lockdowns think that if you oppose them in the name of freedom, then it must be that you think that anybody can run around infecting anybody as much as they like. And that's, for example, the idea that you saw in that article by Paul Krugman blaming Ayn Rand uh, for deaths in the pandemic, which, which ARI then spent a good amount of time responding to uh, and uh, showing how this is not Ayn Rand's idea of freedom at all. But then this isn't just a uh, confusion that people who advocate the lockdowns have. You also see it among those who oppose the lockdowns because some of them actually do, in effect, uh, advocate running around uh, uh, infecting uh, anyone they like, which then feeds and encourages the ideas of the other side. Um, so, Ankar, I thought maybe we should take a moment to uh, talk about how ARI picks the issues that we comment on from this perspective, from the perspective that Ayn Rand's ideas are so new and unique and that you need to consider the previous assumptions that our people in our audience have, the context that our audience is coming from uh, when they're listening to what we're saying that's new about a lot of these issues. 
Um, and I, I thought we'd start with the lockdowns and there's a couple of other examples we could go through. Uh, so you know, here's a case where both sides of this dispute need philosophic clarification. They need to understand that there's a new concept of freedom here, a deeper concept of freedom than either of them or either of these sides understand. It, yeah, there's importance of freedom to keep your business open, but that this isn't the same idea as a freedom to go out and affect people where the point is that the whole reason we need freedom in the first place, whether it's the freedom of business operators or uh, freedom of uh, personal social affairs is to protect human life. And so if you have a concept of freedom that doesn't address to both, uh, doesn't address both, it's, a, it's an impoverished notion. Um, and you've also talked about how it's, it's not enough to just talk about these ideas in the abstract, otherwise they're they're floating cons. They're floating abstractions. You you need to show what they would mean in concrete form, and so you know one of the major uh, uh, efforts that we've made in commenting on the pandemic is not just to advocate for freedom in the abstract, but to show what freedom means. To show that you can avoid lockdowns uh, and respect freedom while still respecting the the values of life and the values of science in the context of a pandemic. That you can adopt a policy like the Taiwanese government did of testing, tracing, and isolating. Ankar, you wrote a 40-page you know, position paper applying these abstract ideas uh, to this concrete situation. And I take it, and you should, you should say more about this because I, I think part of our objective there is to try to point people toward the idea, no, there is this connection between individual freedom and reason and, and life. Uh, that it, freedom doesn't mean whim worship, and that it's that objectivist philosophy distinctly maintains that there is con this connection, and that it applies, and that it works in concrete reality. Yes, and you you brought up the Krugman attack on Ayn Rand that she's responsible for uh, most of the COVID deaths. I think that's a good illustration too that it's you can see a philosophical framework or a philosophical alternatives that are just taken for granted. And what Ayn Rand is doing, what objectivism does is often to say, your range of options or your range of alternatives is artificially restricted. You don't even have on the table all the plausible options. And in this case, if you so, so there's a deep connection between, as you were saying, between the value of political freedom and the acknowledgement and really the embrace that reason is the way that human beings survive, the way that we cope with the world, the way in which we build and create a human environment is through thinking and through then production, which is putting that thought into action to create all the values from computers, to automobiles, to Zoom that we need um, in the face of the world and in face of a pandemic, that's what we're faced with a new infectious disease. So, and if you think of it like that and that government is protecting our freedom, you won't think of government as a necessary evil. You will think of it as a necessary good. Freedom is valuable because we need to think in order to live, we need to be able to pursue our own, own happiness by thinking very carefully about what it requires. That's what government's protecting. So that is like, it's, that's enormously valuable. And the Krugman kind of, what it's activating is we're libertarians who tend towards anarchy. They wanna keep reducing the size of government and the real end point is no government at all. And then it's anybody can do what they want. And that's the whim worship aspect of it. And that's a disaster. If anybody can walk around and run around infecting people, well, that's going to lead to death. And the alternative is give more power to government. And our perspective is both of these are radically wrong and disastrous. That giving power, we've seen what it looks like to give power to government, to lock us all down enormous economic damage. They don't contain the virus because that's not how you would actually do it. Um, and they weren't even trying to do it. They were just trying to reduce deaths because they were panicking. That's wrong, but it would also be wrong to have anybody can just do what they want 
an anarchist kind of perspective. And the proper perspective is there's a role for government. It's delimited, but it's positive. They have a real role to play in infectious disease. And then there's freedom. And you need both of these. The government has to protect our freedom and go uh, do something about the people who are known that is, can, you can identify that they're contagious. And you do need to isolate them. And part of the paper then is about that. So it's, it's about the concrete situation we're facing, but it's the wider framework from which to look at it. And that I think is the way, or, or it's a important way to convey, convey philosophical ideas. And that, that what we have here is you haven't heard this before. That's important for people to get, yeah, this is new. We've said a lot about the lockdowns and the pandemic, but I think it would be good to talk about a, a range of a few other issues as well. And so I thought, I thought we would switch to the very controversial issue of abortion. This is something that I write a lot about. And I sometimes get questions from people asking, why does ARI produce so much topic, so much on this topic, on this very controversial topic? Now, in part, it's because it's a controversial topic, and so people are listening. But there's a lot more to it than that. Um, I mean, this is, this is an issue that I personally find fascinating because objectivism has such a distinctive position on it. And so that it opens up opportunities for clarifying and introducing some of objectivism's very unique philosophical ideas. So for instance, I think both sides of this controversy, whether they're pro-abortion or anti-abortion, don't understand, don't appreciate, and need to understand that being pro-choice means reverence for life. There's almost no one outside of objectivism who appreciates this point. Uh, that freedom, that choice doesn't mean what the left sometimes implies, that you can do anything you want with your body. Um, freedom doesn't mean a right to kill. But on the other hand, uh, life doesn't mean what the conservatives sometimes imply that it means, that life is just the genetic potential of a cell or a heartbeat, that what's actually sacred about life is, is the mind that's capable of making choices, which is something that only the woman has and that the fetus doesn't. So there's, there's a really unique philosophic view here about what life means, about what the right to life means, about what rights in general mean that nobody has outside of objectivism. And here again, the, the concrete applications are really important too. How does translating the idea of this right actually work in the context of a legal system? What does the United States Constitution have to say? How does it apply to the right to abortion? How should we understand current laws on this issue? What about current ju jurisprudence, the way the Supreme Court interprets these laws? Uh, and again, here, I think it's, it's all, all of this serves to help draw attention to and highlight uh, a really distinctive contribution of objectivism, which is, which is the way that it sees morality as serving life and serving rational self-interest as opposed to uh, an approach that, that enshrines duty and self-sacrifice. Further thoughts say, on abortion? Yeah, maybe say a little bit more about the, what I said at the outset about our orientation, which I think was Ayn Rand's, is, and objectivism, which is an orientation towards the positive. So, and, and that this needs real emphasis. And I think the abortion controversy is the, the one element that objectivism contributes is the stress on the positive. So it's often thought that it's the religious Christian so-called, but it's so-called uh, pro-life side, they're oriented towards a positive. And Rand's view and our view is they're not oriented towards a positive, but abortion should be defended on positive terms, not it's has to be allowed. Yeah, it's bad, but it, people should have the freedom to do this. No, having control over reproduction that we've gained in the 20th century and I mean, abortion is not the only form of it, but it's an important form. That's an enormous positive, and it needs to be defended like that. And Good. maybe maybe just say a little bit more, because you write, as you said, you write about this, and it, the, the stress on the positive here. 
Yeah, I mean, I, one issue that I think uh, I, I've done a fair amount of work here on is that it's not just a political issue, but a moral issue. That it's that what one of the distinctive contributions objectivism has is that it's not just objectivism doesn't just argue for the right to abortion. It it also argues that a, abortion is and or can be very right. That it's a good thing for a woman, and that if you if you have the perspective of uh, of an ethics of rational self interest, that what's good for her is what's morally right, uh, because her life is not simply her heartbeat. That when you limit her freedom on a question like reproduction, you're actually destroying her life. That's part of the reason why Ayn Rand's uh, seminal essay on this subject is called On Living Death, because her view is that the, the Catholic Church and those who, the fellow travelers who want to limit abortion rights actually want women to assume a position of living death. You know, they have a heartbeat, they have genetic potential, uh, but they're not actually living a life in the fully human sense. Um, and that's uh, what it, the central value of, of, of living life in a fully human sense is really central to objectivism. It's uh, certainly central uh, to novels like Atlas Shrugged. Um, Ankur, let's talk about one last concrete controversy. Uh, and uh, before I do that, I'll just remind people if you want to submit questions uh, please look at the super chat on YouTube. Uh, otherwise, best way to do it is by uh, through Zoom. Uh, use the Q and A module. Just hover over your screen. There's a button at the bottom. We'll be taking a look at the questions that come in through there. Um, last issue I wanted to talk about, Ankar, is the issue of racism. And this is something that has been all over the news uh, in the last few years, uh, especially because of the Black Lives Matter movement and uh, the protests and the subsequent riots, and uh, Air Eyes had some things to say about this. We haven't said a lot yet. I think we're going to probably say more, but that's itself, I think, a reflection of one of these, uh, of the importance of thinking about the context of the audience here, because a, a major feature of just about everybody's context on this issue is it's a super sensitive issue on both sides, that the left, people on the left are super sensitive and prone to seeing racism everywhere, People on the so-called right are super prone, I think, to being defensive about racism, about being defensive about people's attempts to identify it. And so as a result of everybody's being sensitive on this issue, it's, it's really hard to have a productive intellectual conversation on the topic. I mean, it's normally hard to have a productive conversation on the topic. It's especially hard when it's complicated by uh, police violence and, and cities burning down. Like this is not the optimum time to be having a conversation. Uh, and yet part of the reason I think why people are so sensitive about it is because people's understanding of the issue is so poor and unclear. So few people on either side have any clear understanding of first of all, what racism even is they don't have anything like the objectivist idea that racism is a form of uh, crude determinism. That's a form of the denial of free will. They have very little understanding of what makes racism bad, that because it's a form of determinism, that makes it a form of collectivism. So it's opposed to individualism. Uh, and if you ask people on either side about either of these questions, what racism is, why it's bad, they have so very little to say. Uh, and so before you even start to apply objectivist philosophy to the concrete issues of the day, where racism is an issue and a controversy, I mean, you have to get clear even on what racism is before you can decide how much of it there is, how much of a problem it is. You don't get clear even on what it is and there's no hope of answering that question. But if you can have that conversation in a productive setting where people are more likely to listen and think about it, that's a fantastic opportunity for injecting objectivist ideas into the culture of introducing the very new idea that there's this connection between opposing racism and being an individualist and believing in free will. I mean, these connections, nobody makes these connections outside of objectivism. And people need to see this, but it's, 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 it's hard to get into that conversation when there's so much sensitivity. Thoughts on that issue? And think of the wider way in which we've talked about this issue. So it, so I agree, the, the issue of race, I mean, has 
people know is, is difficult to talk about in today's world. It, there's also the issue of you need to know the way it's being discussed. So the, if you're really trying to engage with people who think differently, if your perspective is, or you, even if it isn't, but you in effect convey this, that their position is crazy, they don't have any reasons for it, it's not based on anything, they will most likely not take you seriously because most positions aren't like that. There are some positions that are completely fabricated. There's no even semi-plausible arguments for them. But if you think of the US and race, there's long been actual racial problems in the US and how to think about that, what the facts are, how to process those facts. If you're not engaging with that, you're not really engaging with people who have different views on this. So what you quoted earlier from Ayn Rand is the first prerequisite for changing minds is to know what you're talking about. And if you don't know what you're talking about, the other person will quickly come to see that you don't know what you're talking about. And it's counterproductive, I think. It's, they'll say that um, there's nothing to your position because you're not even connected to what is actually going on. So it takes work to enter into the actual debates and or um, say about police violence. And to, to, there's a lot you would have to know about that to discuss that issue well, I think. But the wider framework about racism and you brought up it's a form of determinism, individualism, collectivism. I mean, we've talked many times about this issue. And in terms of thinking about it in terms of today's culture, the issue of tribalism is a wider perspective of which racism I think falls under and particularly the way racism is talked about and thought about today. It's one aspect that pushes people into tribes to think of their identities in terms more of their physiology and of accidents whether it's their accident of where they happen to be born, the accident of what gender they have in the sense, I mean, accident isn't the right term, but things outside of a person's control, that that's where your identity comes from. And we've had conferences on tribalism and the antidote is individualism. So, so it's, we've engaged with it, but to engage at a level, particularly about race is both difficult, but you also have to be informed if you're gonna do it well. Great. Uh, I think we should go to questions. There've been a few questions come in uh, that I think are, are, are pretty interesting. Um, maybe start with one that I see on Zoom. Someone asks, would it be safe to say ARI's higher priority is to be correct philosophically than to change the world? I have an idea in mind in response to that, but I, I wonder what you think, Ankar. Yeah, well, go ahead. Uh, well, I mean, the first thing that I would say is I don't think we think there needs to be a choice between the two of these, that, that we think it's important to be correct philosophically in order to change the world. Would you agree with that? Yes, and it what an, a different way to put it is of what we were just talking about. What we're not trying to create is not another tribe, not another that people just identify, oh yeah, this is the group I'm into and I'm gonna uphold these ideas, whether I understand them, whether I think they're true, that, that is, um, you can think of it, this is a disadvantage for positive movements, but the, it's the nature of a positive is you're trying to get people to grasp new truths and they're useless for a person if he doesn't really see the reasons why they're true. If he's just latching onto them because now my identity is gonna be that I say I'm an objectivist, not a Christian or not a Muslim or not a Marxist. And that's what we're after is actual understanding because that's what is necessary to create positives. I mean, and if you go back to other positive movements, the founding fathers are trying to persuade people that this new form of government is the correct form of government, not just, oh, well, we want your vote, but we want you to understand why you should vote this way because that's how you'll get an enduring freedom. And that's the kind of thing we're after. Yeah, that actually connects with another question that came up. Uh, someone asked, is overcoming the resistance to atheism important? 
And the first thing I thought in response to that question was, well, that's there's an issue there, but but I don't think it is that important because it's the positive ideas that people really need to learn to understand better before they change their minds on something like whether they should be religious or believe in God or not. I mean, I know this was the case in my personal case. I mean, part of the reason why I'm so interested in the question of what does it take to change minds is because I'm a person who changed his mind on many of these uh, fundamental issues in a really big way. Like I used to be religious and it wasn't per se the arguments about the existence of God or not that really changed my mind. I mean, that had some effect. It maybe got me a little skeptical, but uh, if it hadn't been for looking at the positive vision of, of life, that's offered by a book like The Fountainhead, I would never have gotten around to taking those questions all that seriously. It was the idea that uh, there's, a, there's a whole uh, moral perspective from a secular philosopher that uh, can help me guide my life. That was what helped me change my mind. And then the question of should I be a theist or a agnostic or an atheist was an afterthought at that point. I don't know if that was if you've had experiences like that, or if you know people who've had experiences like that. Yeah, I wasn't raised religious, so I've never been a, I mean, thought of myself as a believer in some particular religion. But in talking to religious people, I make at least this distinction. I mean, this is a broad distinction, so there's subcategories to this. And the distinction is what's motivating them to embrace their religion. And I think broadly, there can be two motivations. There can be a very destructive motivation that it's about subordinating my mind to an authority and it's about subordinating other people's minds to an authority. When that's the case, I think it, it, there's a use to trying to shatter that view that it's look, there's no reasons, there's no evidence, there's no logic behind this position. And you're just shattering something. But for the person who's attracted to religion or elements of religion for a positive, that it's offering me guidance, it's helping me make sense of the world, I'll never have a conversation with that person where what my goal is is just to shatter that, that you're wrong about this. It's my view in selling objectivism is, look, there's something better than your religion. I understand why you're, you're reaching for something that's helping you make sense of the world. It's giving you a perspective on what's right and wrong. The problem is it's not good what you're reaching for. It's not a good worldview, but you do need a worldview. And here's something that's better. Like you should replace what you have with something better. Not you should, I want to shatter this and leave you sort of uh, um, at, at a loss about how to function. And I've seen that happen to people where, um, I mean, because there's, there's a, I mean, a long history of a lot of arguments that are powerful against the religious position, but where the person, all that they're trying to do is shatter their religious perspective and it leaves people adrift, that is not a goal. And I can understand why people resist that. Yeah. And I was definitely much more in the, in the second category, I think, of, of people who, uh, religion appealed to me because of the guidance it offered. And uh, it, it was seeing the alternate form and the better form of guidance that, that really motivated me to, to look at different, uh, different alternative views. Um, maybe one last question, and then we should, we should cut things off because we're getting at time. Uh, a question came in from Zoom. Can you define short-term goals for changing minds and what issues or changes do you think are the best gateway topics for change. I mean, we've talked about some of those types of issues today. Um, maybe there's a way to generalize from those a bit. You have thoughts on that? So I do the, the this issue that objectivism is presenting new alternatives and new positive alternatives. I think is important for if someone's going to. If what you're trying to do is get someone to start checking out, oh, there's a new, there's something new I've never heard about before. The if you can give, oh yeah, here's a new positive perspective that nobody's told me about before. 
maybe I should investigate more. I think that is a good way in. And there's many different perspectives, but you can take, to give two, two broad ones. Ayn Rand's view of capitalism is different from what people have heard, that it's, um, she doesn't think of it at all in terms of exploitation. She thinks of it as this is a way for individuals to pursue their own happiness, but it's a non-sacrificial form of uh, social existence. And just stressing that it's, it's, there's no sacrifice, nobody's losing. This is, she stresses this in her um, essay, What is Capitalism? That what is crucial about the progress under capitalism in the United States um, in the later part of the 19th century, and we can leave, I mean, there's obviously still some discrimination against various groups, but if you're thinking of the people who are free, it's you're able to build a life for yourself and it's not at the expense of anybody else. And of looking at this, the world like that, that's new to many people. And the deeper issue of that is she has a new conception of selfishness. I saw, I think in the chat, someone was asking about selfishness and that's a controversial term that Ayn Rand is using. But part of what she's using it to do is to say, look, there's a whole category you haven't thought about. There's a person, um, if we put it in fictional terms uh, of a Howard Rourke or a Dagny Taggart from the Fountainhead or Atlas who are pursuing their own lives. But again, it's not at the expense of anybody. So your two alternatives in life aren't giving up my values, my time, my money for the sake of other people or taking their time, their money and their values and expropriating them. Like that's not your two choices. There's an alternative that's non-sacrificial. And the more you can get, oh yeah, so there's a whole alternative that I've never considered. I think the more you're, you're planting questions in people's minds, but this is a question that's oriented towards the positive, that it's, oh, so there's a whole alternative that I've never heard of, nobody's told me about, and yet it sounds attractive. And let me think about exploring that more. And that, I think that's one of the ways that you're trying to open the door for them. Yeah, and on that, I would just add that, uh, I mean, the person was asking about uh, short-term short -term goals for changing minds. And here, I think it's important to keep in mind that you can change someone's mind in a little way and you can change their mind in a big way. And it's not a loss if you only do it in a little way. Little changes in, the mind, in, in minds help a lot. Even if it's not the person becomes an objectivist, but now maybe they become more favorable to capitalism or maybe they don't even become more favorable to capitalism, but they realize there's this alternate view of capitalism that they have to deal with when they're trying to make their own arguments against it which then they have to write about and, and which has the effect of publicizing it. Uh, I mean, if we could just get more better critics of capitalism, that would already be a, a, an amazing uh, achievement, I think, on our part. And I think there's, there's ways that that has already happened in certain regards. Um, so I think, we should, I think we should wrap it up at that point because we are, we are over time. Um, so thanks, Ankar, for joining us uh, to discuss, I think, this very important issue and to give people more uh, light about how AI makes its decisions to communicate these very controversial ideas. I want to share some resources for people who'd like to learn more uh, about our perspective on this. Um, one of them is the the book Philosophy Who Needs It. Uh, this is uh, speaks to a number of the themes that came up today. Ayn Rand's essay Philosophy Who Needs It articulates the perspective that it's philosophy that guides our life, that changes that you know, that's responsible for changes in the culture. And we also read from some passages from her essay, What Can One Do? The whole book has a lot to say about the role of philosophy in guiding life. So uh, please check that out, check out the other essays in it as well. Also, uh, if you want to learn more about how ARI approaches the question of speaking out on the important issues of the day, uh, and applying abstract ideas to concrete controversies where we work hard to do that every week is our online journal, New Ideal. Uh, you can learn more about that by going to newideal.einrand.org.
And I want to also draw people's attention to an event that's happening this coming weekend. Uh, if you are a member of the Ayn Rand Institute, which means if you are a regular donor, you'll be able to attend this event on Saturday, December 12th. That's 2 p.m. Eastern. Uh, one of our monthly ARI roundtables, uh, we'll be having a fireside chat with our CEO, Tal Sfani, who has the, uh, I think, the widest perspective of any of us on what ARI is doing to try to change the culture. It'll be a great opportunity for you, if you're a member, to ask questions about ARI's strategies. If you're not a member, then you can, you can sign up to become one and still uh, join this roundtable. Uh, just need to go to uh, einrand.org slash donate. And I, I should mention, by the way, that uh, because of the CARES Act, you can, actually, uh, you can actually deduct charitable contributions up to $300 per person uh, without having to itemize, which is a new thing. And so there's a quick and easy way to become an ARI member and get to sit in on this uh, excellent conversation where I'm sure, I'm sure we'll have with Tal Safani. And of course, if you have questions that you'd like to send us, if you have ideas for future topics for this podcast, you can send those to our email address. We check this, we read this, we respond to many of the emails, new ideal at einrand.org. So thanks again for joining us this week. We will be back next week. I believe Elon Giorno will be hosting on the topic of Ayn Rand versus the left. We'll have much more to say about that soon. So uh, thanks, Ankar. Uh, thanks, thanks everyone for joining us. Everyone have a good week. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.